In the many years I've lived away from the United States, I've become as reliant as anyone else on mass media for information about what's going on there. Not just for the news, but also for a way of talking to people. When I speak with my family and friends by telephone, they discuss news or politics or their own personal lives in the language they absorb from the media. They started to speak in sound bites, a mental shorthand in which assertions are their own proof. Simply saying something like, this country is in terrible shape, proves the point. And for years, that's exactly what people in the U.S. have been saying about it. Not even last year's presidential election had changed that. The stories about the U.S. have grown increasingly bleak. But I work in broadcast journalism. I know the world we describe isn't always the world as it is. So I was slightly skeptical that things in America were that bad. But when Time and Newsweek magazines, within weeks of each other, ran stories on America the Violent, which described terror not just in New York or Miami, but in the sleepy cities of the Midwest, I was stunned. Drive-by shootings in Topeka, Kansas. Kids carrying guns to school in Des Moines, Iowa. For goodness sake, this is the Midwest, the part of America that calls itself the heartland, the source of many of America's myths about itself, particularly that of the small town made up of good neighbors whose sense of right and wrong is acute. So I decided to drive around the Midwest for a few weeks to see if the heartland was in as dreadful a condition as the media made out. There was another reason I wanted to go back to the Midwest. I was educated there at a place called Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Antioch is particularly known for its liberalism, from my vantage point in London, it seems that part of the problem in America is that liberal thinkers, whose theories in the past have helped solve America's problems, are very quiet. Indeed, the word liberal has become so demonized in the last decade that liberals are afraid to use it anymore. Liberals now call themselves progressives. I wanted to talk to Antioch students to find out what progressive ideas the new generation was discussing that might be applied to America's problems. I landed in Chicago the day after an American helicopter had been shot down in Mogadishu, the capital of Somalia, by the forces of Mohammed Farah Idid. A couple of American soldiers had been killed. As I steamed through the flat farmland of Indiana toward Ohio, the right-wing radio talk show hosts, like Bob Quessel, were having a field day venting their spleen. I'm so angry with seeing this man's body being dragged, especially since he's an American. I want to go up there and I want to kick ass. Pardon me, but I just have to say that. I want to go out there, and I want to beat these people so bad, I don't want to see a deed alive. I really don't. They're letting the world get the impression that America's nothing but a bunch of wimps, and we're pansies, and we're afraid to go in and do the stinking job. Let's get the damn job done! Next, the king of talk radio, Rush Limbaugh, with 18 million listeners weighed in. These poverty numbers, don't buy them, folks. Don't believe these poverty numbers. If we have poverty of anything in this country, it's poverty of values. If we have poverty of anything in this country, it's poverty of honesty from liberals. More on this in a moment. Day 278 of the raw deal. If you're rich or dead, 1,201 days remaining in the Clinton administration. That's what we call the raw deal here. It's a hostage crisis, and we're all held captive. Some of us don't even know it. Here's the phone number, 1-800-282-2882. We must start today with a discussion of Somalia. And whose fault is Somalia? 
According to Rush, it's the liberal media elite as embodied by the New York Times. Why do we go there in the first place? We went there because nobody else would. We went there because our media plastered pictures all over the television and newspapers of this country. The New York Times headline stories on Somalia with the land that God forgot. Of course, if there were a sexual revolution in Somalia, homosexual rights are protected, the New York Times would not have been upset with anything else going on there. That's another story. For 450 miles, I drove with these voices going around my head. As I pulled off Interstate 70 onto U.S. Route 68 to drive the last few miles towards Antioch, I switched off the radio and allowed myself a little wallow in nostalgia. Exactly 25 years ago, I had traveled down this road in similar warm sunshine, a city boy bewildered by the endless cornfields and the smell of manure wafting into the car. Antioch is located in the village of Yellow Springs, Ohio, a physical paradigm of the American small town. You drive through the cornfields, cross a set of railway tracks, and come to a stoplight. Then there's a main street of two-story brick buildings, a stretch of big wooden frame houses set back from the road in large green lawns, then another stoplight, and back into the cornfields. If you turn east off the main street, which is called Xenia Avenue, and go about 50 yards, you get to the college. Set in southwestern Ohio, a deeply conservative part of the country, Yellow Springs is an odd place to find a college dedicated to progressive values. But that's been Antioch's culture since it was set up in the 1850s. Antioch was the first co-educational institution of higher learning in the U.S., and the first to admit black and white students together. The first president was Horace Mann, a noted social reformer and educational theorist, whose motto was, be ashamed to die until you've won some victory for humanity. A social activist creed, that. A quarter of a century ago, as I headed down this same road, Antioch was a national center of social activism. The college was often in the news. Now you expect change in a place after 25 years, but as I pulled up to campus this time, I found that that one aspect of life in Yellow Springs hadn't changed. Antioch is still the focus of media attention. The college had just instituted a written code of sexual practice aimed at controlling students' sexual behavior. The irony is that sex was one of the controversies that put us in the news 25 years ago. Antioch was the first college to allow male and female students to live together in the same dormitories. The administration turned a blind eye to the inevitable increase in sexual activity that followed, so the media focused a titillated eye on us as leaders of the sexual revolution. Now the whirly gig of time had come round, and the college community had just put in place a strict code for sexual conduct which requires a person to obtain verbal consent for each stage of seduction. Do you want to have sex with me is not enough. The request must be specific for each act. In other words, may I kiss you? May I touch this part of you or that part of you? Now the media was on campus to focus a jaundiced eye on this retreat from the sexual revolution. The campus was crawling with media types, television producers hot to get the controversy of the week onto their shows before the story cooled down and another hot story sprang up somewhere else. I figured that, as an alumnus, it would be no problem to wander around and talk to students, perhaps sit in on a lecture or two. But when I made myself known at the college president's office, his assistant explained that, given the circumstances, I couldn't observe classes. 
what we arranged was that I could meet with some students away from campus. So the next morning, I found myself in the Sunrise Cafe on Xenia Avenue buying breakfast for four students, two straight women, a gay woman, and a gay man. I mentioned sexual orientation because in this community, it seems people wish to be identified by a primary allegiance, either to their gender or race or sexual orientation. It was a pretty amiable conversation. I listened as they explained the reason for initiating the policy. Rape had become a terrible problem on campus. How many incidents had there been, I wanted to know. Well, that depends on your definition of rape. And theirs was fairly broad. It seemed to include all sexual contact, which led to regret. One of the straight women said that it wasn't until the community began discussing how to frame the sexual offense policy that many people realized they had been raped, including herself. Now, rape is a terrible and violent crime, I said, but it seems to me that if you've been raped, you know that immediately, not months later. If you regret sleeping with someone, then you can't call it rape. I spoke to them about the way things were when I was a student. Sexual liberation then was seen as a way of battering down notions of middle-class conformity. The gay woman disagreed. Sexual liberation wasn't all good. It put a lot of pressure on women to have sex they didn't want to have. Yes, okay, but you're young, you've got a lot of desire. Shouldn't you be free to explore sexuality? She spoke up again. People need to control their sexual desires. But that's exactly the argument used by people who think homosexuality is a sin to keep gay people in the closet. Underlying this conversation, of course, is fear. No matter where I went in the U.S., it didn't take long for fear to come into the conversation. Perhaps it's caused by people watching too much TV with its endless juxtaposition of fictional murders and rapes and the real-life kind reported in a tabloid news style. Antioch's written code offers tips on how to prevent sexual attack. Lock yourself into your room. Don't go jogging alone. Is this New York City or a village of 2,500 like-minded souls in the middle of some cornfields? I asked them what they were afraid of. They turned the question around on me. Wasn't I afraid for my wife when she went out at night? Not in London, I'm not. Not even when we lived in New York. My wife can take care of herself. Not half an hour's drive from where this conversation is taking place, a woman named Tammy is getting the Urban Suburban Tavern ready for the day's business. The Urban is in a small shopping center on the other side of Dayton. It draws a decent crowd at lunchtime because it puts the Rush Limbaugh show on the loudspeaker. I'd gone there for lunch the previous day. Even though I was alone, I didn't lack for diversion. Running the length of the room, there were four television sets, each tuned to a different channel, a sports channel, a quiz channel, a business channel with the latest stock prices whizzing underneath the talking heads. There's even a television in the men's room so that you can watch TV even as you urinate. The concerns of the kids in Yellow Springs don't begin to enter this place. Tammy's dressed in a T-shirt and blue jean shorts cut above the curve of her buttocks. She's not ashamed of her body and realizes that it improves her tips to show it off, nor is the urban some dirty old man hangout. In the front of the room, families are having lunch. I'm watching the stock quotations whiz underneath the talking heads and thinking of the answers to the quiz questions and listening to Rush Limbaugh rant on about the liberal media when a fellow in his late 50s starts a conversation, actually a monologue, 
a counterpoint to the rush rant coming out of the radio. He's retired from one of the local General Motors plants in Dayton. He was involved in brake assembly, but things began to change when they let women on the shop floor. Women's hands are quicker than men's hands, so they were more productive. This put men under strain to get more done. He had retired because he couldn't keep up with the new pace. Women had been a big change in the workplace. At lunchtime, in the good weather, they went up on the roof of the factory to get some sun. They took off their tops. Sometimes the younger men would go up and join them, and it was difficult to get everybody to go back to work. He kept up a steady stream of chatter, and in due course we arrived at his particular fear, racial fear. He was talking about winter's approach and where down south he might spend time. A friend of his bought a house to retire to in Myrtle Beach in South Carolina years ago, but he had to sell it. The man drops his voice to a whisper. Because it's all blacks there now. They've taken over the town, and he's afraid to go back. My companion is planning to go to Florida, but he won't drive there. Oh, no. They will shoot you just driving down the highway. The memory of this lunch is going through my mind as I drink my fourth cup of coffee listening to the students. There's no point of contact between these two worlds. I told them about the urban suburban tavern. Then I asked why were they devoting so much time to this issue of date rape when there were so many larger issues to address, like the racial fear that poisons so much of America, or finding a populist and progressive way of talking about issues so that they can make themselves understood to men like the retired assembly line worker or Tammy the bartender. Either I didn't make the question clear, or they couldn't understand it. Perhaps the conversation had become too complex for soundbite discourse. In any case, there was no answer. I headed south on Xenia Avenue, out of Yellow Springs, driving through the town's other stoplight back into the cornfields. I had a lot of words going through my head. Rush Limbaugh, yet again, coming from the radio. Memories of discussions from a quarter of a century ago. The talk I just had with the students. I tried to match all these words up to the words of Horace Mann. Be ashamed to die until you have won some victory for humanity.